All right. Welcome. Come on in and grab a seat. Good to see you guys this morning. All right. Go ahead and grab your Bibles if you've got them and uh, flip open to 1st Maccabees. Anybody? Anybody who started turning? I saw somebody start turning. What about Tobit? Go ahead and open your Bible to Tobit. What about Bell and the Dragon? Any of these? Anybody who've done some good devotionals this morning out of Bell and the Dragon? Uh, what about Ecclesiasticus? Uh, see, you thought I was going to say Ecclesiastes. No, nope, Ecclesiasticus. That's what we're going to be talking about this morning. What books belong in the Bible and what books do not belong in the Bible, okay? <clears throat> now, there's a lot of books that don't belong in the Bible. Pretty much every book that's ever been written that's not in the Bible. We don't have time to go through every book ever that's ever been written. And so what we're going to do is this is really going to be kind of two parts. Later on in the semester, we're actually going to have a whole lesson on books outside of the Bible, where we're going to talk about the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of Philip and uh, what are the Dead Sea Scrolls, and we're going to talk about, you know, the Quran and things like this. So that will be another lesson. Today, though, we're only going to have time to deal with three components that Christians have traditionally thought to be part of God's Word, okay? So today we're going to deal with the the Old Testament, excuse me, the Old Testament, the New Testament, and then in other traditions we'll talk about something known as the Apocrypha. And so today we're talking about what is called the canon of Scripture. Why is it called the canon of Scripture? Don't think canon like Civil War canon or canon on a pirate ship. That's canon with two N's in the middle of the word. C-A-N-N-O-N. See, Jeff, I spelled one thing correctly. This type of canon uh, is with one N, all right, with one N. It comes from the Greek word canon. Canon. What is a canon? A canon was, you would go down by a river and you'd see these stalks, these kind of bulrushes, and you would take a stick and you would use that as a measuring stick. So it's this, this measuring stick made of reed, and it's called a canone. It's kind of like having a yardstick or a ruler, because the idea is, uh, what is God's ruler? What is God's standard? What do we hold this up to to measure everything else by? And that's the idea, and that's why we call it the canon of Scripture. So what we're saying is the standard or the rule or the yardstick of Scripture. So here's a definition for the canon of Scripture. The canon of Scripture is a list of all the books that belong in the Bible. That's what we're talking about today. So don't let the word canon or canonicity scare you. All that means is we're talking about the list of books that are part of God's Word, okay? Now, Jeff mentioned some of the things I'm going to mention today, so <clears throat> I apologize where there is a repeat, uh, but let me tell you why this is so important. Um, hold up a book or a Bible if anybody has one. Just hold it up in the air. Yeah, iPhone, that's the best. <laughs> they definitely didn't have iPhones. Okay, hold up your Bible, Jessica. That format where you have pages on each side that you turn, it, they don't have that at the time of the New Testament. That actually doesn't start getting popularized until about the fourth century, although we have it as early as the late first century. And that's called a codex. What we think of as a book today is called a codex, where you have pages that you turn. When you read the word book, though, in the Old Testament or New Testament, to them it meant scroll. All right? When they say book, they mean scroll. So it's very important if you've got a whole library full of scrolls and you're trying to figure out what is the canon of Scripture, what, is the, uh, what books are God's books, you need a list. You need a list of which scrolls are God's scrolls. All right? So when you don't have one volume where 66 books are nicely packaged like we have in the Bible today, you need a list to know which of these scrolls are God's word versus which are just scrolls. Okay? So originally books are scrolls. You don't get a codex or codices is the plural until later on. And uh, so what we're going to do, though, as we go through this list, (coughs) again, I'm sorry (coughs) for the cough. If it's annoying to you, it's definitely annoying to me and the most annoying to my wife, uh, who has to hear me hack and cough all night. So what we're going to do today, though, is we're going to talk about the Old Testament, New Testament, and the Apocrypha when we talk about the canon of Scripture. Everybody good so far on what we're doing this morning? Trying to figure out what books belong in the Bible. Okay, let's start with the Old Testament. Okay, let's start with the Old Testament, and then we'll talk about why we believe that that's the canon of Scripture. Now, before I say that, I need to say this. There was never a time for either the Old Testament or the New Testament where people got together at some council and just decided what books would be in the Bible. If, you, if that's what you're thinking in your mind, that never existed. I remember reading Dan Brown's The Da Vinci Code when I was in high school, and he said at the Council of Nicaea, people got together and determined what books should be in the Bible. No books were determined at the Council of Nicaea. That's not what the Council of Nicaea was for, okay? 
In Judaism, you eventually had a council at a place called Jamnia or Yavne, and uh, Jews were t- discussing what books should be in their Bible, but they didn't change anything. They just left all the books they had already had, so nothing changed. So both with the Old Testament and with the New Testament, there was never a time where a council got together and said, we on behalf of the council hereby declare these books to be scripture. You get one of those, but it doesn't come till the 1500s. So what we see is that as God's word is developing over time, there starts, to ha- there starts to become kind of a general consensus among God's people of what God's word is. Does that make sense? Okay, let me give you an example. Let's talk about the Old Testament. <clears throat> One of the things about God is he gives his word progressively. It's called progressive revelation, okay? Don't think progressive in like a political sense or something. What we mean is God gives his revelation over time. So what is the one commandment God gives Adam and Eve in the garden? Yeah, don't eat the fruit, right? He doesn't come to Eve and say, Eve, this is how you'll select deacons. This is how you'll do baptism. And that wouldn't make any sense to her. She doesn't need that. So God is revealing just what God's people need to know for that time in different periods of redemptive history. And what you see is you see God giving his word slowly over time. You see him, for example, giving the Ten Commandments to God's people after bringing them out of Egypt. He marries them first. He gives them the covenant stipulations. After that, and you have these Ten Commandments, and you see Moses start to develop those. In Deuteronomy 31, you see it says that Moses wrote down additional words of God's law to be deposited beside the Ark of the Covenant, which housed the Ten Commandments. So you got Ten Commandments. Now you've got an expansion from Moses. In Joshua 24, 26, it states that Joshua wrote the words of a covenant he had made and put them in the book of the law of God. So after Moses, you now have this new leader, Joshua, and he expands the word of God and these kind of things. By the way, mankind can never expand the word of God. Only God can do that. God can talk about himself. Man can't just come up and say, let's put some new stuff in God's word. 2 Kings 22 through 23 talks about people finding God's law in the temple and how it sparked revival. And so what you get over time in the Old Testament is you get God slowly revealing himself to his people as they need more information, as they go through different parts of redemptive history. So it's a progressive thing, okay? By the year 435 BC, 435 BC, you have Jews generally agreeing that God's canon is closed. The books of the Old Testament, as they have them, that's God's word and nothing else is God's word. Okay, so you have that going on by about 435 BC, and I'll read you some passages that show that that's what Jews believed in a second. But that's what you have. You have God slowly revealing himself over time in the Old Testament. Also, he's doing so through authoritative prophets and leaders. You can't just come up and say, hi, my name's Bob, and I'd like to add to scripture. And they're like, Bob, that's an interesting Jewish name. Who are you? These people adding to God's word are prophets, figures like Moses, Psalms written by David, wisdom written by Solomon. They're these big figures in redemptive history, and they line up with what God has already said. One of the tests of a false prophet in the Old Testament is whether or not they speak against God's law, something against God's word as it has already been given. And so what you get in the Old Testament is you get this slow, progressive time period where God is giving his word, and then at 435 BC, basically all the Jews are saying, this is God's word. He's not sending any more prophets right now. He's not doing anything special right now. All the Old Testament books were written somewhere between 1400 and 430 B.C., all right, 430 B.C. Now, that's what's going on for the Old Testament. I won't spend as much time today on why we believe the Old Testament is God's Word. Do you want to know the simple reason that we do? Because it was the Bible of the Jews, and we inherited it, and it was Jesus' Bible, So for us as Christians, that's an easier question because it's the Bible Jesus uses and it's the Bible Jesus quotes from and it's the Bible the New Testament quotes from over and over and over again. We inherit the Old Testament from Judaism and suppose that God is sovereign and he has protected his word. There's not a council that's... Early Christians just adopt that. These are the scriptures. We get these from Judaism. Jesus quotes from them. Paul quotes from them. They're seen as God's word. You're seeing in our Mark study, Jesus keeps saying this is going to happen in fulfillment of the scriptures. This is the Bible of Jesus. That's why we accept the Old Testament. What we call the Old Testament, Jesus would have just called the Bible, all right? The scriptures. And that Bible was divided up, and Jeff's already mentioned this, that Bible was divided up into three parts. I don't know why I'm erasing this. I was going to write something, but now I'm not going to. The Bible, it was divided up into three parts. (coughs) The law, what's called the Torah, the Nevi'im, what's called the prophets, that would include not only like Isaiah and Jeremiah, but even things that talk about, like the, the books that talk about, for example, Elijah, because he's a prophet. That was included in the prophets. And then you had something called the writings, all right? 
the writings, the Kethubim. That would include the Psalms, uh, something like Song of Solomon, uh, Proverbs, these kind of things. So in Jewish thinking, by 435 BC, we have the exact same books in the Old Testament that we have today, the only exception being the order in which the books occur and the fact that in a Jewish canon, they combine certain books. So you don't have First and Second Samuel, you'll have Samuel altogether. You don't have Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra and Nehemiah are smushed together. You have both of those. Does that make sense? Now, does anybody know what a Jewish Bible is called today? Torah is actually just the first five books of the Bible. It's not the whole Bible. It's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, what's called the Pentateuch, because there's five of them. It's called the Tanakh. I don't know if you've ever heard that. A Jewish Bible today is called the Tanakh. And the reason it's called that is because of these three divisions of the Old Testament. Torah is where they get the T. Nevi'im, the prophets, is where they get the N in Tanakh. And then the K, Kethubim, is where they get the K at the end. A Tanakh is the Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Kethubim. The law, the prophets, and the writings. Everybody with me so far? Now, most of the writings are taken up by a really big book in the Old Testament. What is that book? Psalms. Exactly right. Psalms is the biggest book of the writings. So sometimes they would even just call that part of Scripture the Psalms. Now, why do I say all of that when we're talking about the Old Testament? Because this passage from Jesus, Luke 24, 44, says this. He said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So even from the mouth of Jesus, you see this Old Testament Jewish idea of canon, of law, prophets, and writings spoken of in the New Testament. Everybody with me so far? Okay. So by 435 BC, you have the Old Testament canon. It's closed. God's people are waiting for a prophet. And how many years is there between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New? About 400. About 400. By the way, This is why it's so radical when John the Baptist steps onto the scene. John the Baptist is not some just weird guy that lives in the woods and eats bugs. The reason John the Baptist is so radical is because after not having God speak to his people, after not having a prophetic voice in Israel for 400 years, you now have a guy stepping onto the scene declaring to make paths straight because the Lord is coming. How is that John the Baptist dressed, by the way? Yeah, yeah, he's got a hair uh, cloth kind of shirt, and he's got a leather belt. That's the exact same description given in the Old Testament of Elijah. There is now a prophet in Israel. And John the Baptist is radical because after not having a prophet for 400 years, now there's a prophetic voice stepping up and with authority saying, this is what God has told me to do. Get ready, the king is coming. That's why he's so radical. He's also radical (coughs) because he's baptizing Jews. If you were a Gentile and converted to Judaism... You would, uh, you would be baptized, all right, by this time period. This is not a prescription from the Old Testament. This is something that Jews would do around the time of the first century and before. So if you were to convert to Judaism, if you were male, you'd be circumcised. Once you healed, you would then be baptized. So the reason John the Baptist is also radical is because he is saying, don't say you're a child of Abraham and therefore you think you and God are cool. You have to bear fruit in keeping with repentance, Jew or Gentile. So when the Pharisees show up with their bathrobes, he's like, wait a second, do you guys understand what you're doing? So John the Baptist is saying all people need repentance. They knew that Gentiles should be baptized. The fact that he's telling Jews they have to repent and they need to do this symbol of repentance as well, that's something radical. He's calling God's people again to repentance, okay? So you now get this prophetic voice of John the Baptist and you get the teachings and writings of the New Testament. The apostles' writings begin to be seen on the same authority as the Old Testament scriptures. So you already have this Old Testament, And now you have apostles, which very much, (coughs) apostles in the New Testament are very much like prophets in the Old Testament, if you want to think of it that way. And you have them now speaking words and writing words from God. Everybody with me so far? I know there's a lot of information. Okay. Now, I want to read some passages. Jeff already read these, but these go along with canon, so I want to read them again. I want want you to see how the New Testament authors are seen as speaking the words of God on the same level as Scripture from the Old Testament. 1 Timothy 5.18 says this, For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Mm. Does that just encourage you? Does that warm you? Anybody have that crocheted on a pillow in their house? Anybody? You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Where is that a quote from? Does anybody know? Deuteronomy. Very good. 
And this is also the scripture. He's like, let me quote to you the scripture. Don't muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. And the laborer deserves his wages. That is mentioned nowhere in the Old Testament. That is not a direct quote from the Old Testament. That is a quote from the Gospel of Luke. So here you have him saying, here's what the scriptures say. Old Testament stuff, stuff Jesus taught. Old Testament stuff, the Gospel of Luke. So you see Luke's writing being held on the same level as scripture. You see this also, and and Jeff mentioned this one as well, 2 Peter 3.16. This is Peter talking about... (laughs) excuse me, Paul's letters, and he says, as he does in all his letters when he speaks of them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Here you have Paul's writing being called scripture. What Peter's saying is those who are heretics and those who are false teachers are all about twisting God's word. They twist God's Old Testament word and they twist his New Testament word. That's what he's saying. Everybody with me so far? So, Old Testament, how did we get it? Somebody summarize for me. We inherited it from Judaism. It's the Bible of Jesus. If it's good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for us. New Testament, we get apostles writing these different books. But after the time of the first century, the churches have to start saying, wait a second, which one of these, what of these books is God's word? Because there's a lot of books being written by church leaders. There's a lot of letters being written by church leaders. There's a lot of... I mean, things that are being passed around and going around, which of these books are actually God's word? Which of these are actually the teachings of the apostles? The New Testament says that though Christ is the cornerstone, the foundation of the church is on the prophets and the apostles, okay? So what you have over about the first three to four centuries after the time of Christ, you have the church discussing what books it believes are God's books. Everybody with me so far? So that is what we're talking about when we talk about canon. We get the Old Testament from Jews. That's easy. New Testament, which of these books are God's books? Which of these books uh, are God's word? And so what you have over time is you have church leaders writing to each other, and they're trying to determine which books are part of the Bible, which books are part of the Bible. Everybody with me so far? Now, let me be very, very clear. (coughs) The church does not get to decide what books go into the Bible. The church merely gets to recognize what books are already inspired. The church doesn't get to say, we hereby declare these books to be God's word. You don't get to do that. Their job is to find out what books are already God's word and put those forward clearly. Does that make sense? I'll give you an example. So I I spent some time uh, studying theology at a Catholic university, and one of the things they would say to me is they would say, Zach, you love the Bible? That's great. Why don't you come back to Mother Church Because guess who determined what books would be in that Bible you love so much? Protestant? And I would say, ah, you're tricky. But you don't get to determine what books go into God's word. Your job is to recognize what books God has already inspired. He stands over his word, not you. I'll give you an example. Uh, The Secret Service is now the group that looks at true and counterfeit money. It used to be be the FBI, but now it's the Secret Service. If I'm a Secret Service agent and someone pours open a big pile of money in front of me, One, I'm going to be tempted to steal it. But let's say they pour a big pile of money in front of me, and they say, some of this money is real and some of this money is false. We need you to separate out what's real and what's false. What is my job? It's not to say, I hereby declare this to be real money. I hereby declare this to be fake money. That's not my job. My job is to look for the marks of authenticity that's already on the money. There's already a standard of what a real dollar bill has to have, and so I'll look at that, make sure it meets those criteria, and put it over here. Other ones, I'm like, wait a second, that's, the, that's Teddy Roosevelt. Why is he on that $100 bill? And I'll move that over here, right? So <clears throat> what the early church is doing is not declaring these books to be scripture. <clears throat> Their job, like the Secret Service agent, is to separate out what is already God's word. Does that make sense? Okay, so they're not saying it's God. They're saying, let's put all these books before us and let's see which one bear marks of what we know to be true of God's word, okay? Now, let's go through some of these marks that they're generally looking at, okay? Let's go through some of these marks that they're generally looking at when it comes to the New Testament. Number one, was it written by an apostle or someone who was close to an apostle, Okay? Again, these are general rules. There's some debate, for example. We don't know who wrote Hebrews. The early church thought it was Paul. But as a general rule, was it written by an apostle or someone who was close to an apostle? 
okay? This is why Romans should be in the Bible, because it's written by the Apostle Paul. This is why Matthew and John should be in the Bible, because they're written by apostles, and that's also why Mark and Luke should be in there, because Mark hung out with Peter, Luke hung out with Paul. Were they, were they written by apostles or someone who was close to the apostles that could have heard their apostolic gospel? Why is that important? Because Jesus promises in John 14, 26, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Jesus says that to his apostles. The guys that hung out with Jesus, the guys that lived with Jesus day in and day out for three years, those are the guys that most know what Jesus taught and thought and said. And so the first criteria that the early church is looking at is, is it written by an apostle or somebody who knew an apostle? Or can we somehow trace it to the apostles? It can't just come out of the blue. Now, not to steal thunder from our other lesson, but why are some of the gospels that are written by, and again, quotes, you can't see this on the recording, but I'm quoting with my air quotes and my fingers, written by apostles not included in the New Testament? Why don't we have the gospel of Thomas? Is Thomas not an apostle? Why don't we have the gospel of Philip in our canon? Is Philip not an apostle? And here's the answer. All of those other gospels that you hear about on the Discovery Channel, every single one of them, was written after the time of the apostles. They're pseudonyms. They're not really written by the apostles. That's somebody taking the apostle's name, but the apostle's not writing that. So if you have one of those that comes from, for example, like the fourth century, the apostles are all dead by that point. Right? That's not written by the apostles. So we're not saying the apostles wrote a bunch of gospels and here are the ones we like because it affirms our beliefs and here are the ones we don't like. We're saying if it's going to be written by an apostle, it has to be written by the time that the apostles lived, at least before they died. It can't be written after that. And so the reason that we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the reason we don't have Thomas and Philip and Mary Magdalene and Judas as the gospels is because those weren't written by those characters. Those came way too late. Okay? So next time you're watching a Discovery or History Channel special, don't freak out. Some of the best spiritual advice I can ever give you. Don't freak out. God is sovereign. He's in control. We've known about these books for a long time. It's not like the church is hiding them. The reason that the church doesn't take them seriously is because they shouldn't be taken seriously. All right? And by the way, no Christian canon of the major three groups of Christianity, Catholic, Greek, Orthodox, or Protestant, accepts those kind of extra gospels and those kind of things. That's not what the Apocrypha is. We'll talk about that in a second. Everybody with me? Okay. Number two, uh, if you can hang on to the end for questions just so we can record them with Jeff up here. Yeah. <clears throat> Number two, does the book agree with the other books already accepted in the Bible? Does the book already agree with other books accepted in the Bible? Who can think of a reason why it might be important to have some consistency here? Anybody? Shout it out. Yes, yes, God is the same. He doesn't change. The Bible says that like a hundred times, right? Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father in lights, to whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. For I, Yahweh, do not change, therefore you're not condemned, etc., etc. God cannot, a contradiction is a falsehood. If I say my name is Zach and my name is not Zach and I mean the same thing, I have lied to you in one of those sentences. And so God cannot contradict himself. So one of the things we have to look for in these other documents is, is it consistent with God's word? Does it line up with what we know God has already said? So we start with the Old Testament, we inherit from Judaism, and it's the Bible of Jesus, and then as soon as we get that first book, it can't say something like, there are multiple gods that we should worship. That's clearly not God's word. It contradicts God's other word. God is not, God is truth. He mu- everything he says is 100% consistent. He has to say only truth. It is, quote, impossible for God to lie. So the second criteria that we're looking for is, does it agree with the other books already accepted in the Bible? You don't have that with some of these other crazy books. You have passages that clearly uh, disregard and contradict God's word elsewhere. (coughs) Number three, is it historical and accurate in what it says? Is it historical and accurate in what it says? We don't just believe that the Bible's true on theological things. We believe that the Bible is true in everything that it talks about, whether that's history, whether that's science, whether that's uh, sociological, whatever it is. Whatever the Bible says on something, when it speaks, it speaks authoritatively. And so one of the things they're looking for is, is it historical and accurate in what it says? Okay? Is it historical and accurate in what it says? Number four, I think. I always get my numbers messed up. Is it number four? You guys are crushing it. Number four, does it have traditional use in the church? Does it have traditional use in the church? God's word is not meant to only be studied apart from community. It's meant to be studied within community. 
the benefit of all these churches in their first few centuries after the time of Christ writing letters to each other and talking to each other is that Christ has promised to preserve his church. He's promised that the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. So there's safety as Christians who are filled with the Spirit are talking to each other, trying to discern these marks of what God's books are, what books are written by an apostle or somehow linked to the apostles. That's what's going on. So it's not just like you get in uh, Mormonism or you get in Islam or you get something like this where you have one guy that says, God gave me these words. You have people writing and checking each other and making sure, and it's a corporate kind of thing. They're writing letters to each other to see, what does your congregation use? Well, we use the same thing. I wonder why that is. Because God's sovereign, and Jesus' sheep hear his voice. That's why. Okay? Another thing. Now, this one is <coughs> a little more subjective, but that doesn't make it less true. Does it ring a note of truth in the believer's heart and have wide acceptance among the people of God? Does it ring a note of truth in the believer's heart and have wide acceptance among the people of God? Jesus' sheep hear his voice and a stranger they will not follow. When you become a Christian, there's something that changes in you to when, when you read the scriptures, you hear God speaking. After I became a Christian, I would sit through church services and I would hear a pastor exegete the text and there was something where my heart rejoiced. There was something that rang true about that as that pastor was teaching. But then I'd go to another church, or I'd listen to something on uh, TV preachers or something like that. I know I'm really hard on those guys, but I don't care. Uh, and I'd hear something, and there'd be like this check in my spirit. I'm like, wait, wait a second. If we give money, God will give us more money. That means we want money more than God. That's not right. And I would hear these kind of things, and I, there was something that was different. If you read Romans... And you hear about our depravity and you hear about God's grace in Christ and justification through faith and these kind of things, your heart rejoices. When you read the Gospel of Thomas and Jesus is telling Mary that if she wants to inherit eternal life, she has to become a man, it doesn't, right? There is a difference in these things. God has given us his spirit. This is what 1 John means when it talks about that you don't need a teacher because you have the Holy Spirit. That doesn't mean you don't need pastors and teachers and preachers and all these things the Bible says that you need. The idea is the Holy Spirit is the true preserver of Christians, He's the true preserver of Christians, okay? Now, ultimately, and this is the most important reason, why do we believe these New Testament books? Yes, the apostles thing. Yes, because they agree with uh, other works in the Bible. Yes, they're historical and accurate. Yes, they have traditional use. Yes, they ring true in the believer's heart. But here's the ultimate reason why we believe that the New Testament is also God's word. Ready? Because if God is sovereign at all, the one thing he's going to make sure to be sovereign over is that the right words get in his book. If he really does love us, and he really does want us to know him, and he really does reveal himself, and he really does delight, the one thing he's going to make sure that he does is give us what we need for eternal life. <clears throat> for him to do other than that would for, be for him to judge us when he has not even told us what he's requiring. So the ulti our ultimate hope is not in any of these other criteria. Our ultimate hope is that we have a God who has not left his church without what they need for spiritual life and sustenance and salvation. Our hope and faith is in God on these things. That's the ultimate reason I believe it. The reason I believe the New Testament is God's word just like the Old Testament is because I have the Holy Spirit and he makes me believe that. Those other reasons are helpful, but I didn't become a Christian or believe God's word because of these other reasons. It wasn't like I was an atheist and I was like, okay, was this written by an apostle? Check. Was it written here? No, God saved me and changed my heart. And then I had eyes to see clearly that this is God's word. Okay. When do we have the first written record of the New Testament as we have it today? The answer is 367 AD. 367 AD, there is a man named Athanasius. Athanasius is from Africa. Uh, he, is a, he, he was a dwarf, not like a mythical creature, but I mean, he had dwarfism. That's what I mean by that. And uh, he is one of the most famous figures in church history, Athanasius the Great, okay? Athanasius was one of the major proponents of guarding and protecting Christianity, specifically the deity of Christ at the Council of Nicaea. He is a hero of our faith. He's one of the big boys, all right? Uh, so he is uh, Athanasius, who's this church leader, writes a letter to other churches in 367 during Easter. It's called an Easter letter, all right? He writes a, a paschal or Easter letter, and in that letter, he lists the exact same books of the New Testament that we have today. So we have the Old Testament. The churches had already recognized those were God's word, and they were already using it before then. But the first written record that we have of the New Testament books today comes from Athanasius' Easter letter in 367 
uh, AD. By the way, to be a church leader in Alexandria, uh, which is where uh, the region that Athanasius is from, uh, you had to have the Psalms memorized. You had to have two of the major prophets memorized, like uh, Jeremiah and Isaiah. You had to have all of the Gospels memorized, and you had to have Paul's letters memorized. So these are smart men, all right? These are very smart men. So Athanasius is this towering figure in church history, not only because he writes this letter for the New Testament, but more importantly, because he is the big supporter of the full deity of Christ when people are hashing this out in the third century, right? He's, he's a good guy. So we like Athanasius. Uh, that's why he's called Athanasius the Great. Okay. Everybody with me? Everybody with me? Sort of. Okay. Let's talk about the Apocrypha. What on earth is the Apocrypha? The Apocrypha. Jeff, did I spell that right? All right, thumbs up from Jeff. Nailed it. Uh, I don't, yeah. Anyway, Jeff and I have a running joke. Uh, I will intentionally misspell things just to mess with him. Uh, He, though, is a man of righteousness and cares about truth, and so he wants to spell it correctly. Uh, So uh, let's talk about the Apocrypha. Okay, within these canons, here are three big different groupings in Christianity. Protestants, we have Old Testament and New Testament. That's probably not really shocking. Anybody, is that shocking to anybody? I didn't think so. Okay. Catholics have the Old Testament as we have it, New Testament as we have it, but they have these books in the middle called the Apocrypha. The Greek Orthodox Church, which is also where you get like Russian Orthodox and Eastern Orthodoxy, they have the Old Testament, New Testament. They have the Apocrypha, but they have a longer Apocrypha even than the Catholics. I keep saying Apocrypha. What does it mean? What is it? Okay. The word Apocrypha means things that are hidden. Scholars do not know why it's called that. They have theories, but they don't know why. So things that are hidden, that's what this word apocrypha means. Catholics, though, will not call it the apocrypha. They will call it the deuterocanonical books. Deuterocanonical books. What do those words mean? We know what canonical means, canon. Deuteros uh, means second, right? So deuteronomy in the Old Testament is the second iteration of God's law, if you will. Deutero means second. So deuterocanonical means they see these books as canonical, but just after these other ones, after these other ones. Okay? The Apocrypha is not a term that just refers to other books outside of the Bible. I've heard people use it that way. That's not how it's used. The Apocrypha are books that are being written in between the time of the Old Testament and the New. How many years did we say there were between the Old and New Testament? 400 years. During that 400-year period, the books that will become the Apocrypha are being written. So they're not bad books. Like, the Gospel of Thomas is ridiculous. The Apocrypha is not bad. It's helpful for Jewish history. It's helpful for knowing what's going on. It's helpful to know what Jews believed theologically during that time. It's helpful to give us some background. When Jeff taught uh, the lesson that we did last semester on the intertestamental period, a lot of the information we have about that comes from the Apocrypha. So they're not bad. They're just not Scripture. They're not Scripture. So everybody clear on what those books are? Okay. Why... Do Catholics include those books, and we do not? Let's talk about why I don't believe that the Apocrypha should be in the Bible. Let me give you a bunch of reasons. First, let me just read off what books this includes. The books for Catholics and the Apocrypha include the following books. Now, maybe some of these you've heard of, maybe you haven't, okay? Tobit, which is this guy who goes and buries people who have died as an act of reverence for God. Judith, which is this uh, attractive woman who seduces this evil pagan king and kills him. Uh, Additions to Esther, Wisdom of Solomon, Sirach. Sirach has two other names, Ecclesiasticus or the Wisdom of Jesus ben Syrah. That's not Jesus of Nazareth. That's a different guy with the name Jesus. Baruch, which includes a letter of Jeremiah. The Prayer of Azariah, Susanna, Bell and the Dragon, First and Second Maccabees. You might have never heard of some of these. You might have heard of some of these, okay? In Greek Orthodox Church, they have all these books, plus a book called First Estrus, which is also called Third Ezra, Prayer of Manasseh, Third and Fourth Maccabees, and Psalm 151. See, you thought there were only 150 Psalms. Psalm 151. Now, um, by the way, if you ever want to go read any of these books, the most helpful one to read, again, these are not scripture. Let me just be clear. I'm a Protestant. I don't think any of these are scripture. The one that could be most helpful for your understanding of Judaism, though, would be 2 Maccabees. 
So if you want to go and you want to learn a little bit about this, but you don't want to have to read the whole Apocrypha, read 2 Maccabees. You can get it for free online. You just type it in and you can read the text. It's very helpful for understanding the intertestamental history. What was the bad guy's name that Jeff mentioned during that lesson? Does anybody remember? Antiochus, Antiochus IV Epiphanes, right? And they called him Epimenes, which means madman. He's mentioned in there, and the Jews fight against him. So it's a very helpful book if you want to, uh, if you want to uh, read a little bit of the Apocrypha. When you read it, it will feel different than Scripture. I remember I read the whole Apocrypha a couple years ago, and I just remember reading through it, and it actually encouraged my faith because it was even clearer that it wasn't Scripture, okay? But let me mention some reasons why the Apocrypha should not be included in the Bible. Number one, and this is a biggie. This is a biggie. It was never included in the Hebrew Bible. The Jews did not consider the Apocrypha as Scripture. Everybody got that? In the Hebrew Bible, it did not include any of those books that I just mentioned. Okay? So the Apocrypha was never part of the original Hebrew Bible. So when we adopt the Old Testament from Judaism, we're adopting their Hebrew Bible. Where does the Apocrypha come from? Okay, let's do a little history. Once upon a time... There was this conquering king named Alexander the Alexander the Great. Conquered the known world before he was 30. What were you doing in your 20s? He was conquering the known world before he was 30, which is why he's not called like Alexander the Pretty Good. He's Alexander the Great. And as he's conquering these places and he's spreading uh, Hellenistic influence, he's spreading Greek religion, Greek becomes the dominant language that's being spoken. It becomes what's called the lingua franca, the... Uh, literally that means French language, but the common language among the people is Greek. Uh, even Rome, after they conquer uh, this, the known world, after that, they still speak Greek primarily. They'll write their official documents and stuff in Latin, uh, but they'll speak Greek. Greek becomes the most popular language in the known world at that time because of Alexander the Great's influence. <coughs> so <coughs> what happens when all these good Jewish boys and girls start forgetting their Hebrew and start forgetting their Aramaic and they start knowing Greek? Well, what you need is you need a translation of the Old Testament into Greek into Greek. Who knows what that's called? You guys are so good. You guys are crushing it. All right? Septuagint. Oh, Jeff, help me. Nailed it. Nailed it. Septuagint. <clears throat> the Septuagint, you'll hear us use that term, is simply the Old Testament in Greek. It's a translation into the language of the common people in Greek because that was, the, that was like the English, if you will, of their day. That was the common language that people are using, okay? Sometimes you'll see the Septuagint abbreviated like this, LXX. What in Roman numerals does that number equal? Oh, some of you guys are really good, all right? Roman numerals are tough. A bunch of I's and V's, I start getting super confused. That's the Roman numeral for 70. Tradition, legend has it that when they decided to make the Septuagint, they took 70, some accounts say 72, uh, scribes, and they had them all go try to translate the Old Testament into Greek, and they all came back, and all of their translations matched perfectly. That's ridiculous. That won't happen with just two translations. They'll be off by like hundreds of different places, but that's the legend. That's the tradition, but anyway, so you get the Septuagint. By the way, the New Testament authors are often quoting, when they quote the Old Testament, they're quoting from the Septuagint. How can you know that you can trust your Bible translation even though it's just a translation? Because God uses that in his word. That's encouraging. Now, in the Septuagint, they included the books of the Apocrypha. So it wasn't in the original Hebrew Bible. It wasn't in the original Hebrew text. When they translated the Bible, or they translated the Bible into Greek, they said, you know, since we're already translating these important books to Jews, let's put in some of our other historical books. Let's put in some other things that are important to us as Jews within this text. So we'll just have all of it. You can take a Septuagint, give it to Jews. They not only know God's scripture, but they also know this important, these important books of Jewish history in between the time of the Testaments. Everybody with me? <clears throat> but it was not included originally in the Hebrew Bible. That's one of the reasons we don't believe the Apocrypha is God's word. Number two, it's never said to have divine authority from any biblical author. It's never said to have divine authority from any biblical author. There are other books in the New Testament that are quoted that are not included in God's word. They're not included in God's word. Hebrews quotes the Testament of Isaiah when it talks about people being sawn in two. Jude quotes from 1 Enoch and maybe the Assumption of Moses. Uh, in Acts, 
Uh, in Acts, uh, Paul quotes from Epimenides and a guy named Aratus. There's a lot of these quotations, even in the New Testament, of books outside the Bible, but not once do the New Testaments directly quote as an authority the Apocrypha. They quote Genesis, they quote Psalms, they quote Daniel, they quote Isaiah, they quote Jeremiah, they, qu- they quote all over the place in the Old Testament. But you never have Jesus saying something like, as it is written in First Estrus, and then saying something, okay? It's never quoted as an authority in the New Testament. Again, showing that Jews didn't believe that the Apocrypha was, uh, was God's word. Erase this. I'm going to write the word apocrypha there just because I'm talking about that. I don't want people to think bad about the Septuagint. I want you to think bad about the apocrypha. I'm kidding. It's helpful. It's just not scripture. Okay? Number three. It wasn't accepted by the Jews as scripture. The apocrypha was not understood to be scripture by the Jews. Let me give you some quotes from around this time. The first is from a guy named Josephus who's a Jewish historian from the first century, he says this, from Artaxerxes to our own time, the complete history has been written, but has not been deemed worthy of equal credit with the earlier records because of the failure of the exact succession of the prophets. Here's what Josephus is saying about the Apocrypha. We've kept up with our history, but we don't include it in scripture because God's words seem to stop and we don't have this succession of prophets like we had in the Old Testament where there was kind of one after another ordained by God to give prophecy. Here's another one. This comes from the Babylonian Talmud. After the latter prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi had died, the Holy Spirit departed from Israel. So here you have the Talmud being spoken of as an authority in Judaism saying, after the Old Testament ends, we don't have God speaking through his spirit to us. First Maccabees. Listen, so listen, this is so crazy. First Maccabees is one of the books in the Apocrypha, but here's what the Apocrypha says about itself. Ready? First Maccabees 4, 45 through 46. What happened here is they tear down an altar and they've got these sacred stones because they were used on the altar and they're like, what should we do with these? We don't want to just throw them away. They were God's holy altar. So what should we do? And First Maccabees 4, 45 through 46 says this. So they tore down the altar and put the stones in a suitable place on the temple hill where they were to be kept until a prophet should appear and decide what to do with them. So after they tear down the altar, they're saying, we need God to send a prophet to tell us what to do with these stones. In First Maccabees, what does all that mean? Basically, it means that First Maccabees itself is saying, God has not sent us prophets. God has not sent us these authoritative figures because we don't know what to do with these. We'll wait till God sends a prophet so we'll know what to do with them. <clears throat> Number four. This is a big one. Number four. Why do I not believe the Apocrypha is God's word? It has historical, geographical, and theological errors. Okay? Let me tell you some. The book of Judith says that Nebuchadnezzar was the king of, over Assyria when he was actually the king over Babylon. Again, if it's God's word, it's got to be perfect. So you see a historical error there in Judith. Tobit teaches justification by works, specifically paying alms. Okay? You can see why the Roman Catholic Church might want to keep some of these as they're fighting a doctrine of justification by faith alone. Wisdom of Solomon has God creating the universe from pre-existing matter. And let me give you this quote from the book of Sirach. Sirach is a very interesting book, but it says crazy things. One, it says, never to play with or be nice to your kids, only show them discipline. Uh, there's a verse in Sirach that actually hints that the Holy Spirit might be created, which is blasphemy. Uh, But here's a a passage. Now, again, this is offensive. I don't hold this. This is what I think is not the Bible, okay? So before I read it, Sirach 42, 14, a man's wickedness is better than a woman's goodness. Women bring shame and disgrace. Sorry, ladies. Sorry, ladies. Jesus ben Syrah uh, over (coughs) the book of Sirach does not think positively of women. Number five, they don't claim to be scriptures themselves, okay? Even in the New Testament, they'll claim authority. Paul will say, if you don't recognize what I'm writing to you as God's word, you shouldn't be recognized. They'll say, I'm writing to you as an apostle. They'll speak with authority. You don't have that with the Apocrypha. They don't claim to be scriptures themselves. In fact, at least twice, books in the Apocrypha talk about how God has ceased to give revelation in their time. So they don't see themselves as scripture. Number six, am I I sufficiently beating this dead horse? Okay, number six. Who knows? Okay, what is the official Bible 
of the Roman Catholic Church. Does anybody know what it's called? The Vulgate. Very good. The Roman Catholic Church, the official Bible of the Roman Catholic Church is a Latin Bible. Okay? The Bible is written in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, but their official Bible is a Latin translation of the Bible called the Vulgate. Okay? It's, you see the word vulgar in there. That was the idea is that a lot of people were speaking Latin, so it's called the Vulgate. Okay? It was written by a guy named Jerome, St. Jerome, who's a big figure in church history. It was written by Jerome in 404 AD. Jerome, 04. The Vulgata, the Vulgate. Okay? Now, he's the one. He, he, he knows Greek. He goes and studies with the rabbi to learn Hebrew, because at this time, not a lot of people learned Hebrew. Learns both languages, translates the entire Bible into Latin. It's the official Bible of the Roman Catholic Church. In his preface to the Vulgate, he says, the Apocrypha is not Scripture. He says, it's helpful. I'm including this in here because it's used in churches, but it's not God's Word. So when I'm talking to a Catholic, I'm like, wait a second, the guy that wrote your Bible says this isn't in your Bible. So Jerome, who wrote the Vulgate in 404, translated the Vulgate rather, said that it wasn't Scripture in his preface. Lastly, do you know when the Apocrypha was officially declared to be Scripture by the Roman Catholic Church? You think it was the first century, second century, third century, like these other New Testament books? It wasn't until the Council of Trent in 1546 that it was officially declared Scripture, and even that was a response to Martin Luther and Protestantism. As Martin Luther is teaching things like a justification by faith alone, the Roman Catholic Church says, well, wait a second, we get some, some quotes in Tobit about justification by paying alms and by works. We need to keep these books in here to fight Luther. As Luther is saying, you can't pray and talk to saints. They're dead. They can't hear you. They're saying, you know what, we need to keep these passages in here where people are praying for the dead to fight Martin Luther. So they're keeping those books in there to fight against the Protestant Reformation, not because they were originally considered Scripture by Jews. By Jews. Lastly, and then I'll have uh, Jeff come up and we'll spend some time in questions. Why do I believe the canon is closed? We talked about this a little bit last week. We, We said we'd give some reasons why I believe the canon is closed. How do we know that God is not giving us more revelation uh, that's on the same level as Scripture today? How do we know we're not going to find a book somewhere? You ever wondered that? What if we're just in some cave somewhere and we find another letter of Paul or something? Should we add it to the Scriptures? Let's, let me give you some, some reasons why I think <coughs> that uh, the canon is closed. Number one, the apostles are all dead and nobody writing today could meet the standard requirements given above for canonicity. Okay? Those requirements that I gave for why a book needed to be included, that it has to be linked to an apostle somehow, it has to be accepted by the early church pretty universally, uh, it can't have any errors and things like that. There's no book today that you could find that would meet those. One, you wouldn't know they were written by an apostle, even if they were, but two, how could it meet the requirement of being accepted by the early church? If one of the requirements is that God's people have always had this as something that they need, God could not have left out one of his books or else he has failed to provide for his people. Does that make sense? What we'd have to do is we'd have to say, wait a second, God, if we found this book, you have not been faithful to 2,000 years of Christians who've not had it, that apparently needed it because we're in the same period of redemptive history as they are. God already knew when he had the canon be closed all the things that would ever be discovered by man. And he thought not to include any other books we would find to be included in the canon. Number two, the Bible hints that the canon is closed. Hebrews 1, 1 through 2. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. The author of Hebrews is basically saying, God gave his revelation progressively over time through a bunch of different ways and a bunch of different prophets in the Old Testament. But God's final word has been accomplished in Jesus, who is himself the word of God. We don't need anything else. We don't need anything else. The the, the author of Hebrews seems to think God's final word was in Christ. We don't need words now 2,000 years later that have something to do with things other than Christ. Timothy 3, 14 through 16. (coughs) But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have been firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, 
and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Listen to verse 17. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. If we were to find another book or if there was some revelation God's church should have and we don't have it, then it means this passage is false. Because this passage says that the Bible's sufficient. It says that it, we need it. It says it twice, that the man of God might be complete and equipped for every good work. If we find new revelation from God, then we're not complete and equipped for every good work. We're not equipped for those good works that this new document says we should do. Okay? Number four. <clears throat> now, this is kind of a theological point, so let me, let me finish in explaining it. There is a warning in the book of Revelation that if anybody should take away words from this prophecy, their name will be taken away from the book of life. And if anyone should add words to this prophecy, the plagues mentioned in Revelation will be added to them. Now, let me be clear. That is not about the whole Bible. That is specifically about the book of Revelation. It says the words of this prophecy. However, theologically speaking, we see something in Revelation that we also saw in the Old Testament where God says, do not add to my words, do not take away from my words. It's not a coincidence that in the very last book of the Bible, there is this warning not to add to that prophecy. Theologically, we can extrapolate from that and say, God seems to be really cautious here with people trying to add things to his word. By the way, those who are more theologically liberal have a tendency to take away from God's word. Those of us who are more theologically conservative, we have to be careful of this. We have a tendency to add to God's word. We have a tendency to start adding rules and adding things that we think are holy and we think are righteous that the Bible doesn't actually say explicitly. Okay, so we have to be careful as well. Number five, <clears throat> there is literally nothing else you would need. The Bible begins with in the beginning God and it ends with God's people worshiping for him forever, new heavens and new earth. What other revelation do you need? What's not included in those two bookends? Listen, when God gave his word in the Old Testament, he would give it at different periods of redemptive history. So he'd give a command to this, and then God would deliver them out of Egypt, so he gives laws to Moses. Then it transitions to Joshua, and God gives his words to Joshua. Then it transitions to David, and God gives words to David, and these kind of things. We live in the same period of redemptive history as the apostles. We live in between Christ's resurrection and his second coming. That's where all Christians live. We live in the same period of redemptive history. So there will not be another period before Christ comes back where we'll need some other word or something like this. So, so historically even, it wouldn't make sense. And lastly, and this is the ultimate reason I believe it. I gave you all those other reasons uh, to encourage your faith, but here's ultimately the reason I believe the canon is closed. is because I trust in the sovereignty of God. It starts with the character of God. There is an element in all these things. We can give you proof and we can do apologetics and we can do all of that. It ultimately goes back, though, to the fact <coughs> that we have faith because God determined we would have faith. It goes back to the fact that God is sovereign. It goes back to the fact that God has given us his spirit. It goes back to the fact that God is going to make sure his people have what we need. So yes, there are all these other reasons and stuff that the, that, that the early church is looking at to make sure they get the right books. But as they're doing so, God's hand stands over them and he makes sure the right things get into his word. Make sure the right things get into his word.